In this episode of the Lancat podcast, I talk to Alistair McQueen from Aviva. We talk about how and why Aviva has taken a lead in promoting the interests of older workers and the midlife MOT. We talk about people's changing relationship with the state and their employer. And we share some thoughts around the advice gap. Thanks for listening. interesting that the way life throws things at you I've, I've morphed from being david tennant into being louis theroux that's it, it is, it is what it worse. is there we go it could be a lot worse yeah so alistair welcome to the Langcat podcast it's good to have you here good to meet you and good to speak to you just give us the quick intro on alistair mcqueen well i'm sitting here with a bit of imposter syndrome but it's delighted to be here so i work in aviva i'm the head of savings and retirement in my day job which There are many people in that part of the business. My responsibility in part is to represent us in the media, represent us with government and those officials, which I love, and getting more into the policy think tank side of it. Aviva is well known in the UK. I think it's 97 out of 100 people know who Aviva is. But I'll be honest, you then say to people, what do Aviva do? They'll say, oh, you're the car insurer, aren't you? And they underappreciate the the scale and significance of our um, savings and retirement business. So part of my responsibility is to tell the world that half of our UK business, half of our 15 million customers in the UK are in the savings and retirement division and we've got something to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, I worked for Norwich Union I joined that company back in 1986, which feels like quite a long time ago now. But for me, Norwich Union, and then it became a fever. <laughs> it was always it was always a life and pensions company. That's how I knew it. So that was yeah. always my perception of the business. But I absolutely recognise what you say that. Aviva has been so successful on on some of its general insurance activities that it's understandable that it's seen in that way. I think you're doing a fantastic job at raising the profile of the of the retirement side of the business. So there's that. Yeah, it's not. I wouldn't just say it's just because of the success of the general insurance business. Yes, it's been successful, but as the people that you know and I know and people listening to this podcast will know, much of the savings and retirement business has been in the past intermediated. So yeah, employers knew Aviva was big in this market and advisors knew we had something to offer in this market. But we didn't in the past have a real need to tell the man and the woman in the street that Aviva was big and strong in this market. That is changing and Aviva is changing with it. It was driven by need in the past and the need in the future is different. So we are working to make sure that people in the street do understand and appreciate. And you'll see that in some of our advertising coming through into the TV and elsewhere. Okay, yeah. And for you personally, what attracted to you about this role? Because, I mean, you are very good as a public speaker. You're very good as a spokesman for the organization. So what was the path that actually brought you to (laughs) becoming this, you know, the face of Aviva? Yeah, well, I think I have still to work out the art of going to a wedding or a party or into the pub and enthusing people when I say I work in pensions. I don't know whether you've in the past or now managed to do that. I've still struggled. But I do love the arena that I'm in. And the reason I love it is not, I'll be honest, because the technicalities and the wiring of this pension product or that pension product. The reason I love it is because of its macro relevance to so many factors in society, whether it's economics, politics, sociology, demography, psychology, pensions is massive and all of those things. And 
as a person, I've always been more of a generalist than a technician. Yeah. So I studied economics at university. My previous roles have been more in the strategy and communications, which have been broad brush, which I appeals to me. And to take those skills and that interest and that enthusiasm into the pensions arena surprised me, but yeah. totally gets me now. This is an area where whether somebody wants to get involved in politics or macroeconomics or individual savings behavior and psychology it's all under that what can sometimes be the gray lid of pensions savings and retirement but i love it yeah that's that's really good and it, and it is noticeable how over the last 10 years or so maybe there's been this gradual shift in people's attitudes. it is okay now to admit you work in pensions and, <laughs> and where yeah do, do you know what i mean once upon a time if you said that you know yeah. you'd, all of a sudden you'd find yourself alone in the kitchen at parties and actually now sometimes people yeah. start asking you questions about it and they're kind of quite pleased to be able to talk to you about some of this stuff yeah yeah i agree i agree with that i mean i think we've shifted from being this is the subject that nobody wanted to talk about to one that people i think in the mass public recognize they should be thinking about as we still haven't got to the stage where everybody skips with great enthusiasm towards the issues at play, but that's totally understandable. People have got busy lives, but at least, as you say, people are now recognising the importance of what you, me and many others do on a daily basis, which is motivating in itself. And getting people excited about a deferred gratification credence good is always going to be a bit of an uphill struggle. I mean, personally, I'm never going to enjoy going to the dentist. And I recognize that something as abstract as pensions, something as expensive and complicated, you know, it's it's always going to be a struggle to get people feeling. In Aviv every year, we bring in a range of bright graduates into the organization. And I'm asked to introduce them to the savings and retirement division of Aviva. And one of the ways I enthuse them is say that the challenge, as you say, of deferred gratification is one that the UK faces, but every developed economy around the world faces in this arena. And nobody around the world has yet been able to crack that challenge. And I genuinely believe that the individual that can work out how to challenge that need for deferred gratification and make it work, there's a huge prize that awaits that individual. So if you want to be the next billionaire, then work out how to do that in the UK and then take that skill around the world. There's a huge prize that awaits. Yeah, no, I think that challenge of getting people to make a compact with their future selves, it's always going to be hard. I think we are kind of slightly hardwired to live somewhat in the moment. But you're right, yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge to work yeah. on. I'm really interested in all the work yeah. that you've done around, and you've been very high profile on this, on older workers. And Aviva has done a lot of good work on things like the midlife MOT. And rightly, you've, you know, you're regularly name checked by the pensions minister. He, he mentioned Aviva again in the last <laughs> select committee he hearing. Did. Really good. But, you know, you look at the numbers and the shift in the population, which, you know, this is slow motion stuff, but it is pretty relentless as well. In 2014, the average age of the UK population went over 40 for the first time. And by 2040, one in seven will be aged over 75. You know, we are getting older as a population, unless something really catastrophic happens. This is the direction of travel. Now, you've invested a lot of time and focus of energy in that. I mean, I've got a couple of questions, I guess, on that. I'm interested to know what was the strategic decision that Aviva went through to focus its energy so much in that space? 
I'm interested in how it's played out within its own workforce and interested in the kind of work that mm-hmm. Aviva's doing and projecting it out in, towards employers and the client base that it's working with. So there's several questions yeah. there, sorry, but just well, I think, pick that up. I think, thank you, but, and I think it has to start with some credit to the leadership at the highest level in Aviva. Aviva has grown, you've mentioned Norwich Union, there's been General Accent, there's been Commercial Union, that's ultimately all come together with Friends Life and others to create Aviva. And those were relatively smaller organisations that have created a much larger organisation that now serves 15 million people in the UK, thousands of employers, etc. And I think it took time for Aviva to appreciate that now that we were of a scale, that brings with it a social responsibility. Uh, and our leadership recognised that. If we want to be large, we can't just be solely focused on the immediate commercial hitting the next month's targets we have a, a bigger role to play that comes with being of that scale. And and so our leadership said, you know what, we have to step up into some more of these societal challenges beyond just selling the next product. And from our savings and retirement business, which as I say is half of the UK business, which is six, seven million customers in the UK, which is X billion pounds of assets under management, we recognize the aging society challenge and we recognize that there are really two levers that individuals can pull to respond to that longer later life and how they're going to fund that longer later life. One lever is you can save more mm. and the other lever is you can work longer. Mm. And if an individual doesn't want to pull either of those levers, then the third lever that they can pull is they can retire poorer. And so we felt we had great credibility in the saving more with all the work in automatic enrollment and all the individuals who save with Aviva and all the investments we put into pensions and ISAs and all the other stuff. So that we had credibility, but we honestly didn't feel we had any credibility against the second lever of supporting and helping society work longer. So we felt a little bit hollow in our desire to show social good. And therefore, our management and we all believe that, you know, what we need to step up and play our part in working longer. And initially, it was seen, I think, as a, as I say, a social good, a nice to do, a bell on the the tree and, and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. But very quickly, when we started to look at our own business and the challenge I give to all other mature businesses is this shifted very much from being a nice to do to a need to do from our own commercial operations. And that was a real light bulb moment when we recognized in Aviva with our 15,000 people that the fastest growing population was the over 45s, that the average over 45 with Aviva had 18 years of experience with Aviva, a very loyal population. This was the population that knew how to get things done in a complex organization because they'd been with us for a number of years. And yet we were putting into our, our annual report and accounts that, you know, our people are our greatest asset. But this mature population was worried that age was a barrier to their opportunity. We're leaving the organization at a faster rate than the younger population. And so not just the HR director saying this is something we should do. Suddenly the finance director is saying, wait a minute, I've got a huge asset here that we are losing and wasting. And yeah. so... So rather than it just being something that we should do and is the nice thing to do and the right warm thing to do, suddenly the mindset shifted to one of commercial need. And that's the bit that squares the circle with with your shareholders, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the bit that gets energy inside an organization. You can push social nicety so far, but there's a ceiling to that given commercial pressures. When you've got a commercial driver and a shareholder motivation, suddenly you've got a lot more oomph and energy behind it. So we move into a commercial need and that chimed with wider motivations that, as you say, the pension minister has carried and others in society have recognised. So something that we felt we should do, then we thought, no, we must need to do, has kind of come along at the same time as others in society have recognised that the UK also needs to do. And so it's been a, a very positive overlap from Aviva to others in the, in the debate. Fantastic. The midlife MOT work. I'm interested to hear a bit more about that and how successful you feel Aviva has been. I mean, clearly it's worked internally and, you know, you've talked about the connection mm. it's made with your staff and how it's helped with retention and yeah. you don't lose all that experience and knowledge and know-how that might otherwise yeah. drift away. How successful do you feel Aviva has been at pushing that out beyond the boundaries of your business to whether it's yeah. workplace schemes that you're dealing with or, or, or elsewhere? You know, I think, yes, it's been successful in Aviva and therefore it's core part of our operation. And that's what we've got immediate control over. Mm. I think what I would say is that 5%, and I have to be honest and say this is a societal challenge, 5% of businesses of the million businesses in the UK are currently alive to the challenges of an aging workforce. 95% of yet to wake up. So when we look at our 20,000 plus schemes that we serve, mm. about 5% of them are saying, Do you know what, yeah, we recognize this. We see this challenge coming over the horizon and we need to be there. And therefore they call upon Aviva to support with our services like Midlife MOTs, which is an annual checkup. Mm on wealth, work and well-being for people aged 45 plus. Why is it only 5%? I think I've got some sympathy and some despair. The sympathy is, look, if you run a business, the challenge is to keep the lights on and the last 18 months of a pandemic, the challenge of keeping lights on have been huge. And I can understand why things like aging of your workforce can be seen as a problem for tomorrow. And therefore, maybe you have to focus where the pressure and the crises are. So I understand that. I'm not blind to that. But the despair is the belief among some that the shape of the workforce that we have today will be the same tomorrow in the years to come. This naive assumption that just by throwing open your front doors as people leave, you'll rake in the next generation of younger workers. Demographics show that's just not going to be the case. In the, in the coming 10 years, at the current rate of movement in the workforce, 10, 12 million people will leave and will gain about 7 million in at the younger end of the spectrum. There's a 5 million employment shortfall. And so there's going to be a war for talent. And you can either try and win that war amongst the new young employees that are coming in, or you can sustain and support the mature employees that you currently have inside the organization. So that's the despairing point amongst a large number of employers who have yet to wake up and realize that this is not just a nice to do investment, this is an investment in their future. And those who fail to do so will really face great challenges in the years to come. So that that's it with the employers. I just quickly pause. Aviva tick, employers 5% ticking, 95% not yet there, and we keep pushing with them. And the third leg is that of the government. And I think there are pockets in the government who recognise this societal challenge. I think 
hats off to the guy up from the pension minister. He's been there knocking on this door and he has created his own sponsored midlife MOT board to try and drive this. He recognises that it brings together different departments of government. In effect, it tries to unite the Department for Work and Pensions for financial work, the Department for Education, for career development work and the Department of Health and Social Services, social care for health work. To do anything across government that straddles departments is tough, but he's trying to do it. So we support him in that. Well, yeah, yeah, I don't don't think it's any great revelation to make the observation that elements of government can end up working in silos. And, you know, bridging across departments can be phenomenally difficult. I mean, it's hard enough in big organisations, and you might have seen it even within Aviva. I certainly found it at times in Hargreaves Lansdowne that you get silos, you get reporting lines. Bridging across them is not simple. With government, it's definitely not easy. Well, I mean, Aviva, we like to talk about how we're a big organisation and puff our chest out. We've got 15,000 people. There's 80,000 people in the Department for Working and Pensions alone. What is it, one and a half million people who work for the NHS? Mm. So I totally get the silos that can be created in those enormous operations. But the challenge is to make us all join up. Easier said than done, but there's some good people trying to make that happen. And I was really interested in what you were saying about the shape of the workforce. Mm. And I've been reading, uh, and we're going for a tangent for a second, but I've been reading a really interesting book by a guy called Sebastian Payne about how Labour lost the last general election. And yeah. He's been going around some of the red wall seats. Yeah. And, and, you know, by the way, I mean, the two overriding factors above all else were Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn. Labour didn't manage Brexit well, and a lot of people, it turns out, really didn't warm to Jeremy Corbyn outside his, yeah. his core fanatical base. But in going round those red wall seats, he, he encounters communities that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, would have been heavily unionised, were largely industrial, yeah. and that's all changed. And just thinking about what you're saying about the shifting nature of the workforce. Yes, we've got these older yeah. workers who are still there now working at Aviva and, and, and at Hargreaves Lansdowne. As the younger workers come through, what is the unifying force for those younger workers? Because it doesn't feel like it's the unions anymore. It doesn't feel like it's the employers. People are perhaps more job... I mean, people have always been mm. more job mobile at younger ages, but... How do you then connect with those younger workers and what are the cohesive forces that bring them together? Yeah, big question. I think there is a, and I'm in danger of generalizing, obviously. In amongst what we see in Aviva's younger population, there's not an immediate sense of loyalty to the brand. You know, there's a more transactional nature of the relationship between the employee and the employer amongst a percentage of our younger employees. That sort of deference to the employer is no longer there. You know, I will give you my labor if you give me rewards. And if you don't, I'll move on to the next employer. And and to be honest, I think that's quite healthy. I think the world and the future is going to require a lot more individual responsibility and a mindset of a transactional relationship between the individual young employee and their employer is probably not a bad thing because they are probably going to face more job career changes in their life than me and people before me have experienced. So that mindset is not a bad thing. So how does Aviva try and engage and unite and and, and speak to that population? First of all, I think there's a 
recognize this fact that just because you're the boss doesn't mean to say you'll guarantee that loyalty. You have to earn that loyalty. We have to listen to the needs, pressures and priorities of these people. There's a real danger that me in designing pension propositions assume that the experiences and priorities for younger people are the ones that I faced. The challenge of getting on the housing ladder is greater than ever before for younger people. They've experienced a decade of incredibly poor wage growth. Job security is not what it was in the past. Defined benefit pensions no longer exist. So I really, I get really annoyed when I hear people talk about younger people saying they've got a live for today attitude and they've got their head in the sand. They're not taking their personal finances seriously. I would say to older people who threw that challenge at younger people saying, you've got no idea of the challenges that these younger people are facing compared to what I had and other people around me have had. So hats off to them, mature respect to them, listen to them, and and do not just give them what I think they need, but build and listen to them and give them what they do need and what they do value. Absolutely recognize what you say. And, you know, as a parent with late teenage, 20-something children who've look at the housing market and, I mean, Bristol is not far off London prices and they're just they're just not even thinking about buying a house. They're sitting on tens of yeah. thousands of pounds of student debt and it's not that they dismiss that debt but they almost kind of box it off. It's like, well, it's a thing and I live with it but it completely reframes how they anticipate their lives will progress and I think, I think yeah. you're right that it's easy for older cohorts, older generations to misinterpret that and to see the choices that young people make through the lenses of the choices that they made at that age. And and the question has changed. I think automatic enrollment is the success story that I will roll out in this point in the conversation that, you know, when you look at the movement in ages and participation by ages through automatic enrollment, the fastest growing age group, the one age group that has doubled its level of participation in workplace pensions has been those under the age of 30. Now, a lot of that is inertia, but every one of those millions of young people who have been automatically enrolled have had the option of turning around and opting out, and millions of them have not chosen to do so, despite all of the economic and financial pressures that you're touching on and I'm touching on. So hats off to those younger people that recognize the need to prepare for their longer-term future, despite everything else that's going on around them. So the the problem is not sitting with those younger people. The problem is sometimes with our industry and others to to catch up with their needs and recognize their needs. Yeah, and also, I mean, looping back around to where we came in in terms of the challenge of persuading people to save, you know, hats off also, I think, to people like Shlomo Bonazzi and to, to Adair Turner, who understood that we could stand here and shout at people till the cows come home about how you must save more money. (laughs) But actually, if we just put people in pensions, do you know what? They'll probably stay there because there is a part of their brain that recognizes that, okay, thanks. Yeah. I'm quite glad you did that for me. Now I'm saving money and that's a problem you've solved for me. So I'm not going to kick against it. But that that was a genius insight to recognize that that was the way to to get across that. There's something else that kind of relates to that that I wanted to pick up with you, which is around financial advice and the Mm -hmm. fact that, what, 7 or 8% of the population take regulated advice. It's somewhere in that kind of territory. Yeah. That millions of people think that advice is too expensive. They don't entirely trust or value what they perceive financial advice can do for them. 
Yeah. And financial literacy levels in this country are pretty low. So how do you see us moving forward from there, Alistair? First of all, I would argue that the financial advice community in the UK is as good and if not better than anywhere else. I think it's an incredibly mm. professional community. And it serves that seven, eight, nine percent of the population brilliantly. And so that is a really Rolls Royce solution that is there. The problem that the UK has got is that there is more individual responsibility for our long-term financial well-being today than there has ever been. Mm. The responsibility has shifted from the state and the employer onto the shoulders of the individual. Mm. And if you look at any international study, for whatever reason, financial literacy in the UK is below the global developed economy average. The OECD does this every so often and we're always in the lower tier. So we have thrown a huge amount of individual responsibility onto people's individual shoulders. But the truth is that most people are not capable to carry that individual responsibility because they've not been given the support nor the education. Mm. And so many people are flying blind with this individual responsibility, which is not a healthy place for them to be. And with only 9%, let's say, or 8 9% of the population having access to financial advice, 90% of people, not only are they flying blind, they're flying solo. Mm. And that is not a good place for us to be. If you're, And so millions of people are flying blind and flying solo towards a retirement and a longer financial place that is not going to be good for them. So that is the problem is clear and it's strong and it's stark. The question is, therefore, what do you do about it? Yeah. And... I cannot see a situation where that, let's say, 9% of the population who have access to financial advice becomes 90% of the population. The capacity, the commerciality of stretching that financial advice solution to 90% of the population doesn't add up. Now, a large percent of population will not need financial advice. The state will be there for them. But it's certainly more than 9%. Mm. But I say and with the best will in the world, I think you can get that 9% up to, let's say, amazing 20% of the population have been given the confidence, the courage, the ease of accessing financial advice. But there's still going to be millions of people that are unable to access it. What does that 20% look like? What changes to double that number that you just talked about? First of all, I think there's an element of giving customers there's a job for us to do, and by us, I mean the collective financial services sector, to give customers confidence about approaching financial advice. Huh. I work in a financial services organization. Aviva has an in-house financial advice services. The number of people that I know who work in Aviva, a financial services company, who are scared, and I use that word consciously, yeah. of approaching a financial advisor is significant because they are not sure what the questions will be. They'll not be sure how they'll answer that question. The reality is, when you actually do sit down with that financial advisor, they are an incredibly supportive, yeah. engaging, understanding individual. So there's an element that we have to do to downplay the fear factor of approaching a financial advisor who's, appear, who's perceived to be a man in his 50s wearing a pinstripe suit that only deals with very rich people. And that, that's yeah. it's a perception challenge. So that's hurdle one. The second hurdle is certainly the affordability of financial advice. 
Now, there's various factors underpinning that. People would go to professional indemnity insurance and that's mm. causing the, the cost of financial advice to rise. And there's a whole debate to be had there that gets had about how could you make financial advice more affordable? And there are various models that people could use. People might tout robo-advice as a means of doing that, for example. But my first point is to try and rebrand and reposition and, and re-enthuse the wider public's appetite to go towards financial advice. Who's going to do that? And bring we as an industry. I mean, I think a view as financial advice business does have a a stream of communication that tries to show, quote unquote, people like me, to show to people Mm. the types of individuals who are accessing financial advice. And clearly there's a commercial motivation for Aviva, but also showing people these are our financial advisors to try and bust the myth of this is who we are. But we all need to do it to support this bridge. But if we can get from that night, let's say you could somehow with perception improvement, reducing the fear factor and somehow making it more affordable, you could maybe get from nine towards 20% or something like that. Wonderful. But for the millions beyond that, that's where there needs to be more oomph behind guidance, non-advised guidance. And the ability for people like Aviva to give guidance is hugely handcuffed. We've got the resources to speak to millions of people every year. But we don't have the ability and the authority to give anything beyond basic information. And that leaves a huge gap. And so we, are, we publicly and repeatedly challenge legislators and regulators to say the rules that we had yesterday are not fit for purpose tomorrow. And, a, and we need to provide more leeway to provide more guidance. There's a couple of things there, though. I mean, I've, I mean first of all, I think it, it's incumbent on me to name check a client of uh, the Landcat here, <laughs> Open Money, who've who've been doing yeah. a lot of good work around trying to deliver largely, you know, remotely low cost advice to people. Yeah. And I think they also deserve credit for turning a lot of people away. So part of their business model involves saying to people, look, you know, you need to go and pay that debt off first. Come back and talk to us next year. Yeah. Which I think is a really responsible yeah. approach. But I mean, I also know, and I'm not close to them as a business, I don't deal with them directly. It's challenging, you know. They're working on narrow margins, so I, sure. I don't. I don't think they'd pretend that what they're doing is easy, um, and it's still very much a work in progress. So there's that. Yeah. But also, one of the things that struck me, having stepped away from this industry for eighteen months or so, and then come yeah. back again, is really apparent that the FCAA is under new management, and mm-hmm. you know the door is open a crack. There's a chink of light shining through. Yeah with their investment strategy paper they put out a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, where they talk about, I mean, there's a consultation paper to come in Q1 2022, which involves partly making it easier for firms to support customers on making investment decisions. Yeah. And you think, hello, well, what does that mean? Where are you going to go with that? Are you going to give us a bit more latitude to guide our customers here? Are we going to go back down the kind of road that Otto Torreson took us down, whatever it was, 10 or so years ago, 15 years ago, probably now, towards simplified products? Because like, to me, ISA is pretty simple already, but you know, maybe a bit of kite marking. I mean, do you see some regulatory movement coming on that front? I I do. I see the words. I see the, the great, I think there's a genuine intention there from the what you call the new leadership at the FCA and there's an openness to listen and I think there's political pressure on them to move which is all very good. I think the the challenge I would put to the regulators is you know clearly they've got a responsibility to manage risk 
And I sense there's been a bias towards managing what I'd call broadly short-term risk. How do we make sure that a customer today does not get, suffer any sort of immediate detriment today? Yeah. And they do that brilliantly, like a, a police force out there well, um, punishing I mean, people. Not entirely. I mean, look, go, go to South Wales and you'll find some evidence. Well, you know. So, so yeah. m- mostly I agree with you, but even there, they've not entirely nailed it. But sorry, I interrupted sure, you. Go but, on. Yeah. No, a good challenge. But I think my concern is that while we are and they are understandably fighting short-term risk fires and putting them out and doing their best to put them out, that controlling mindset might blind all of them and all of us to the even massive, bigger risk that's coming over the horizon, and that is the risk of millions of people entering retirement with inadequate provision. Yeah, That's the risk that they and we all need to feel accountable for. If we walk around patting ourselves in the back saying we've stopped this scam, which we must do, and we've put that dubious character out of business, mm. which we must do, that is great. Mm. But if we, that is all we do, and we create a really risk-averse culture, which prohibits individuals from waking up to the reality of their financial retirement needs. We will create a generation in not too distant future that will enter retirement and will say to us rightly, and by us, I mean the financial services sector and the regulators and the politicians, why on earth did you not tell me that I am going to be retiring on an inadequate income? Why did you not tell me that my retirement is not like my mum or my dad's was? And they will be totally justified in doing that. So so it's not just firefighting. Should part of their statutory obligation, their consumer protection obligation, should that be interpreted very specifically as helping people to make provision for the future because it's not the FCA's job to sell products but could no. you see could you see a treasury committee calling FCA executives in front of them as they do periodically and saying okay show us the dashboard how many people have been investing how many people have been saving what are you doing to make that happen yeah i think you're maybe closer to the the terms and remits and responsibility of the FCA. And yes, it's not to sell products, but it is, I believe, to have a responsibility for the health of the UK financial sector Mm. that must be in that remit. And to be stoking and nurturing and financial sector that is potentially on track to have millions of people entering retirement with inadequate provision is failing against that primary fundamental responsibility that they must carry. So so I'm asking them to look to the longer term. I'm asking politicians to ask them to look to the longer term. Then you come back to the perennial challenge of our industry of, of democracy. And by that, I mean a five-year electoral cycle. It's really difficult to get people who do live in five-year electoral cycles to think 20, 30 years out into the future. I think automatic enrollment is a great example of it can be done if the political will is there. I think the when automatic enrollment was created in the early 2000s, it was an era, I think, of more political consensus. I fear that today's binary approach mm-hmm. to politics and schisms in society is not healthy for fixing long-term problems. So we just need to ban Twitter and then we'll be all fine and we can get back to being one happy family again. <laughs> if only, it's all Jack's fault, isn't it? It's all Jack Dorsey's fault. Yeah, it's, it's, think, it's all his fault. It's all know, his fault. And when we had the Turner Commission back in the early 2000s, you know, the, 
the Blair government had so much political capital in the bank yeah. that I think it was so much easier for them to reach out to the opposition parties at the time, who yeah. you know had nothing to gain by being obtuse about things. It just made sense for everybody mm-hmm. to work together at that time. And I think I think you're right. I mean, certainly it would have been impossible over the last three or four years. It may be becoming a bit more possible again now. And I think, you know, there are, we've mentioned Guy Opperman already. I think he's really good. I think John Glenn at the Treasury is good. I think there are there are good people on the opposition benches as well who are, you know, there is a willingness among some of these people to look to the long term and perhaps to to talk to each other about where consensus can be found. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we in our sector should be looking across to... Another sector that is looking at long-term challenge, and I think they've been a lot more successful than our sector is, and by that other sector, I mean the environmental community. I think ageing and longevity issues and demography that you and I are talking about is a challenge that's coming big over the horizon tomorrow. To some extent, I would say a bit like the environmental challenges. Most of us have not yet felt the immediate impact of environmental change. Hmm. Yet, society is now willing to give priority to it. There's a great monthly poll that Ipsos Mori do called the Issues Index. And it, it looks at what are the societal things that are keeping people awake at night. And it's a list of 35 things. Ten years ago, Aging and the environment were next to each other, around about 25 on that list of 30. Today, the environment is up at one, two, three, four, or five. Aging has moved up a few notches. So we need to look across and ask, how have they managed to get their issue much higher up the political agenda, the societal agenda, much more so than we have with aging. We either need a Greta Thunberg or a David, um, what's his name? David, BBC One. Attenborough. What's his name? Attenborough. Yeah, we need a David Attenborough, quite famous, or a Greta Thunberg. Quite famous. <laughs> Mental block. Him. One of those people to do what they've done for the environment to do for aging. That's yeah, what we need. the job for you there, Alistair. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I think on that note, call it a day that's been really good to talk to you um, I, I, I like Thank the you. idea of Alistair, Alistair McQueen as the Greta Thunberg of, of ageing and retirement yeah what is it more do 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 less blah 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 there you go There's okay. your, that's what she said and we'll say the same for our industry good to talk to you Alistair thank you and you